orthopraxy was a thing. Okay. I actually just like... It sounds like it costs extra when you go back to the orthodontist. Okay. <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, we're here today for another exciting episode. Um, we have in the studio a fan favorite. Um, and I want to be very clear, even though we're going to talk about it, this is not because I've suddenly become woke to the gender imbalances of this podcast because of the women's soccer triumph, but it just happened that this is the way it worked out, and we are going to talk about that. So, Megan McArdle, welcome back to the Remnant Podcast. Uh, well, it's good to be back. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you. You're one of my um, my favorite people, regardless of how you identify. Oh, right back at you, Jonah. So, where to begin? Why don't we actually begin with um, the ladies who kick the ball around the place? Uh, our champions. Yeah. Uh, my patriotic heart beats faster just a little bit every time I think about our Women's World Cup winners. Um, yes, I just wrote a column on this uh-huh. uh, because the basically the women won the World Cup. The men didn't even qualify. And this has become a big cause celeb for feminists. It, it, it had long been a complaint that women in athletics don't make as much as men. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the top uh, 100 list of top 100 paid athletes in the world from Forbes, interestingly, you know, if you look at just the normal uh, – top 100 list of all rich people. It, it's heavily skewed towards Europe and, and North America mm-hmm. uh, and and, ref, and reflects that, the, the racial balance of, of those places, rather brightly given the uh, collective albedo of all of the Caucasians <laughs> on the list. Caucasian but, albedo is actually a great name for a band. <laughs> Thank you. Albedo, by the way, listeners, is the refraction of light from white things like clouds that sends heat back into space. But yes. anyway... Well, so interestingly, uh, the list of top athletes actually inverts the racial caste system. It doesn't just negate it. Mm -hmm. It's actually, if you look at the list, under less than 30 of the top 100 paid athletes are white. Um, What a racial caste system? Racial caste system. C-A-S-T-E. Yeah, I'm not sure that's fair, but anyway, okay. Uh, I, I'm using the, the language of the left okay, to fair discuss enough. Fair a, enough. a left-wing issue. Uh-huh. We will leave that argument for another time. Anyway, uh, but there's only one woman on the list. Uh-huh. It's Serena Williams, and she's number 63. Yeah. And so this has long been something that women have uh, – that feminists have been angry about and talked about a lot, but it sort of burst into the national consciousness. We now have this huge debate over – how much does the women's U.S. women's national soccer, soccer team get paid compared to the U.S. men's national soccer team uh, who are not doing nearly as well? And so uh, I decided that I hadn't been screamed at enough recently. Uh-huh. And so it was a good time to write about this issue for The Washington Post. And one of the things I liked about the column was that I will – you get a half-letter grade – bump just from mem- mentioning Anarchy, the State, and Utopia. And re- <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. So part of your point was that people giving having free choice to spend their money as they want are going to misallocate money in ways that – in the sense that it doesn't fit with someone else's aesthetic understanding of equality or where money should go. Right. So Nozick's argument is that if you've got uh, basically what's called a purely patterned system of distributional justice, which is to say – we look at all of the people who are here at this current moment in the world and we decide how much money each of them should have. Obviously, this is a thought experiment. It's not practical to, to actually do this. But let's say we could. Wait until Bernie's elected. But right. go on. <laughs> and we create this income distribution and then we uh, we decide, ah, this is lovely. We have reached nirvana of, of income justice. What happens if, say, Wilt Chamberlain – Basket, fa- then a famous basketball player. I mean, still famous, but not as famous. Famous for having been a basketball player. Yeah, 
for having been a basketball player. Anyway, what if a team offered Wilt Chamberlain 25 cents on the dollar of their box office receipts? It is a box office in sports, right? Close enough. <laughs> their Ticket gate sales. receipts. Yeah. Ticket sales. Yeah, yeah. Then And then he ends up – a million fans come to the games. He ends up with $250,000 a year. Now, this violates in some sense that, that pattern that we were trying to create. Right. Um, and yet, why is this unjust? Everyone who who gave him the money had the money justly. We all agreed that before uh, Wilt Chamberlain started playing for this new team, it was a just distribution. And so what he's saying is, you know, to maintain an actual just purely patterned system of distributional justice, what you have to do is totally curtail individual choice. Mm-hmm. You cannot allow people to do things they would like to do, even though we all agree no one thinks there's anything wrong with going to see Wilt Chamberlain play basketball, right? And so similarly with this, no one's doing anything wrong by watching men's FIFA, right? right. The problem is that many, many, many more of those people watch men's FIFA than women's FIFA. And that means that the revenue disparities are enormous. So basically, you know, the complaint had been that or one of the complaints, this is a very thorny issue. I'm focusing on the easiest one to explain. There's also a very, very complicated um, argument about how U.S. uh, women's and men's teams salaries are calculated by U.S. soccer. But this is an incredibly thorny issue of collective bargaining agreements that I will not bore the readers with. Anyway, or listen. <laughs> or listen. Yes, sorry. Once a columnist, always a columnist. Anyway, so if you look at the people who have been complaining, like, look, FIFA gives basically four hundred million dollars to the men's teams to split. Right. They give thirty million to the women's teams to split, um, and this is like a gross disparity. However, the revenue for men's soccer, FIFA men's soccer, is $6 billion. Right. The revenue for women's soccer is $131 million. So the women are actually getting a bigger split of the total pot. FIFA is basically subsidizing the women. Right. But because of the disparity, in order to actually make it equal, they would have to either take money from the men, who, again, haven't done anything wrong by playing well and attracting lots of fans, right. or they would have to pay the women three times what their tournament actually attracts. Right. So Well, and also, I mean, FIFA... You said FIFA is subsidizing the women. Is that reality, how it's pronounced? This is how little I know. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's the way I pronounced it in my head, but I, I could be entirely wrong. Uh, um, but it's really it's the men's team that's subsidizing the women's team, yeah. right? Because it's the revenue from the men's well, team. Well, yes, yes, that is correct. But the the men's team don't get all of that money either. And so you could, of course, get into a big lefty-righty argument about whether, like, capital has too much power and more money should be going to the workers on Fair the enough. side. Fair I enough. Mean, my point is, is that the men's team is a profit center in a way that the yeah, women's team the is women, the men's team is a profit center. The women's team is certainly less of a profit center. Right. I can't – I don't have access to FIFA books and I can't say whether they're Fair actually enough. making money on women's play or not. I mean, I should be clear. I, I think I may even eclipse you in my – total ambivalence about soccer of all kinds. So uh, rarely have I been so passionate about an issue I care so little about. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and I think that actually is true of a lot of uh, of people. It's like there's a kind of ideological thing of if you're a feminist, I'm watching women's soccer, not because I particularly like soccer, but because right. like the women are doing really well and I want to support women. And then there's a bunch of grumpy conservatives who are just like, you know, soccer sucks and I hate these women. Like, why? OK, why are you arguing about their salaries then? Why do you care? Yeah. So, and also, I mean, I, I got to say, so I have a bunch of friends who I will not name. Normally, I out my 
reprobate friends, but I won't do it this time, who I'm on a group text message with, and they love men's soccer. Mm-hmm. And they make many, at times, inappropriate jokes about women's soccer. Not sexual, just sort of about how no one likes it and how boring it is or whatever. They, same jokes you hear about the WNBA, which I think right. arouses even less passion from people than women's soccer does. And the behavior of Rapino, Rapino, Rapino? I think it's Rapino. That's okay. how I've heard it pronounced by newscasters. Um, I've heard it both ways, and it, it bothers me. Um, it vexes me. But uh, This is why my household actually had a seminar on how to pronounce Kamala Harris's first name. Really? <laughs> yes. Were there flyers? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and Pete Buttigieg's last yeah. name. You know, you have, to, you have to do these things. It's difficult. I think it's funny how, the, how Mayor Pete organically emerges as a sort of a Hayekian solution to the pronunciation problem. Yes, you know? indeed. Um, but anyway, so I, 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 um, uh, my problem with the uh, – so anyway, my point about my reprobate friends was only that when she goes out and does this anti-Trump stuff, you know, when people know my views on Trump, uh, doesn't ta- – you know, takes a knee, all that kind of stuff, it is – to me, I don't think it is a great PR strategy – for if you want if you want to shine a light on the unfairness of of the of the disparity in pay which we'll just stipulate exists for the moment binding it up into all of this other stuff makes it part and parcel of a culture war fight and impossible to debate without dragging in Right. allies, you know, from the woke side or from the cranky so side. So I think this actually really goes to an argument that I've been having about a lot of kind of modern protest culture for a long time. And I, 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 to, I will try to give the fair version of the other side of it. My argument has long been on just a bunch of things, including electing President Trump, is that don't make your protest as alienating to people who don't already agree with you as possible. Right. Right. Is actually try to choose things. And if you look at the most successful protest movement in American history, certainly modern American history, the civil rights movement, and they're quite deliberately choosing things where they're doing normal everyday activities and right. forcing the police to behave like barbarians. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that like – like, it's their fault. What I'm saying is, like, they're creating a situation where the police, in order to enforce this brutal, horrific regime, has to behave like barbarians. Right. And then that's going on television and throwing the contrast into high relief, right? right. And that's an incredible... If you're reasonable and you force others to be unreasonable, you're winning the argument. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that in any way that anyone except the government and the police was responsible for the horrific things sure. they did under... under yeah, 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 yeah. Just re-emphasizing Stipulated. that Stipulated, yes. Um, so, you know, I've long said, like, it's, I actually, I I think Colin Kaepernick has, here we get to another name that I think I'm pronouncing correctly. (laughs) This is what happens when you spend all day reading, um, instead of watching television. Um, don't, don't read kids. It's bad for you. Uh, so anyway, you know, like, I think I can totally understand why he would feel motivated to, to kneel at the national anthem and the people who say things like, how ungrateful he is for all this country's done to him. Like, I'm sorry, like the United States has not been a kind place for African-Americans. There were most, most of them had ancestors brought here as slaves and then were mistreated not only through slavery, but after slavery, you know, there's all sorts of disparities. I, and there is still a great disparity in policing, right? And whether or not you can make this conservative argument that, well, that's because the offending rates are higher, but it, it doesn't matter, right? Is like no white American would accept that 
accept that explanation if they were the ones getting targeted by the police. They wouldn't be like, oh, well, some other white dude like did something. I guess this is just the price I have to pay, right? right? Um, they certainly don't accept that kind of collective responsibility when, say, another conservative does something wrong and then liberals are like, look, you are all just like that, right? And so I've always thought he had a perfect right to, to protest and always admired his willingness to do that. Um, at the same time, I'm, I'm not sure tactically it's an effective protest, mm-hmm. right? I don't think it's it's a good choice of venue to make and kind of trying to argue with people's visceral response, which is the normal kind of left-wing response to this. Is so like, well, people shouldn't feel that way. Well, okay. We, right. That's like, we can argue that at another time. They do feel that way. They are going to feel that way. And you're not going to argue them out of it. In fact, you're just going to make them matter when you start, when you start telling anyone you shouldn't feel like you feel, they just get mad. They don't think, oh yeah, you're right. My base visceral emotions are, are, incorrect. Um, and this is the first thing like a marital counselor will tell you, right? You don't argue with how people feel about events. You listen. Right. Right. Um, and so I think ta- on a tactical level, I've always said, I just don't think this is an effective tactical protest. Um, and I could be wrong about that. But so the, the, the main rejoinder to that is like, look, that assumes that the purpose of protest is to get kind of the middle people who don't agree with you on your side. And it's not. Protest has that, can have that function. It does, doesn't often, frankly, certainly not in modern times. But it has another function, which is binding your group together, getting, mm-hmm. making them more energized, getting them more excited and hyped about your cause. And so if you embrace that model of protest, which I think writ large at a national level, as both groups do more and more binding themselves together, is disastrous, right? Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think regardless of your opinion about the justice of any of these causes, right, is that two groups doing that at the same time has not been good for American democracy. Um, But if that's what you're trying to do, right, what she can say is like, look, I've got I'm going to pull like anti the anti-Trump resistance, LGBT, you know, the feminists, I'm pulling them all together in a big coalition and getting them all angry about a bunch of stuff at the same time and actually like importing some of the anger from those other causes to my cause, and that's actually good for it. And, you know, maybe. Um, I, again, tend to be somewhat skeptical of this argument, um, but it is, it's not like a completely unreasonable thing to believe. Yeah, no, that's all fine. I mean, I, I mean, I, I have, some, there are some, there were some points of friction in some of the stuff that you were saying. Um, <laughs> sure. But uh, I really don't want to litigate, you know, Black Lives Matter aspects of these kinds of things. We can just move on from some of that. Although I do recommend the listeners point out, uh, go back and listen to the Tom Sowell broadcast, which um, had some good insights about overreading the patterns in some of these things. He points out that like, uh, you know, when you're talking about, sort of getting back to the Nozick point, is it Nozick or Nozick? Nozick, I'm pretty sure. Nozick. So when you go, it's, we can, it's, 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 Pronunciation. Turns out that this is the first time Jonah or I has ever left our homes and <laughs> spoken with another person. So, listeners, you are here for the great moment. Uh, so a few many, cave trolls doing a podcast. So many germ vectors I have to deal with these days. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, he points out that sort of going to the Nozick point about, you know, black poverty, um, households. Where uh, going going back a ways, obviously, but households that have um, sort of married couples or have library cards or subscribe to newspapers mm-hmm. often had um, 
uh, a higher household income rate than comparative white families, right? I mean, so, and it's not like the system knows that those black people have library cards, right? right. So, I mean, there are behavioral explanations for some of these things, but I, I, again, we don't need yeah. to get on all that. Let's 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 uh, on the Rapinoe thing. I get your galaxy brain defense of what she's trying to do. <laughs> My sense is, is that she's a young woman who is really psyched about how well she did, really passionate about her politics, and sees no reason to be tactical because she's wearing her heart on her sleeve, which is what I think a lot of protesters do. Very possible. Uh, my galaxy brain tick may be wrong. Um, um, or but, it, it might be right, but not the motivation for what she's Right. Doing. I mean, there's, there's – I mean – you often hear about the current president explanations of what they're doing that sound spot on, except for the fact that there's no way that was actually going on in the president's actual brain, yes. right? Um, but okay, I, I, I'm going to bring up a spontaneous order point. Okay, here. okay. Um, which is, and this is something that you have to really that I have long really struggled to convince people about markets and also about social forces, which is that in a process of hunt and find of mm -hmm. iteration and discovery and doing away with the things that aren't working and doing more of whatever is working, right? It can end up looking to outside observers like it's a conscious system of design. And so uh, one explanation for the liberal media, the media is liberal. Um, that's absolutely true. But like I'll talk to conservatives about that. And to them, it looks like a plan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I and what I try to explain to them is it's not a plan. It's just kind of an accident that happens as a bunch of people all act on their individual impulses right. and create something that can look very much like a conspiracy sometimes. I get that, but that's not what it is. And so similarly, even if Trump is not having some sort of galaxy brain plan, secret plan, um, and even if Megan Rapinoe is not having like a deep kind of from first principles uh, thought process about how protest works, just by looking at what's working and what's giving them positive feedback, right, they can recreate that effect even if they didn't intend it. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, at least I'm going to think it's fair until I think it through some more. Um, <laughs> all right. But so like, going back to this this claim that you reference in your column about um, that there's systemic racism because people care more about – there are more people who are interested in men's soccer than in women's soccer. Systemic sexism. Sex, I'm sorry. Sub systemic sexism. I apologize. Um, How intersectional of you. Yeah. Um, uh, is there – how to put this? Um, is, there, is there any evidence that paying the players more money would somehow get more people interested in watching women's soccer? No, no. If I don't think so, um, in part because so why is that a solution? Um, well, it's a solution to a different problem, which is the women are pay, paid less. If we pay uh -huh. them more, they would not be paid less. That's 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 true. That is axiomatic. Um, so, in some ways, I think you're overthinking this, uh -huh. right? It's like, but this is precisely the point: is that like, well, you actually have to the extent that it's sexism at all, and I don't know that it is. I mean, so I. I have now had this argument with many of my commenters and some of my kind of Twitter followers is that like there are people who are saying like who are you to say that the women's game is worse than the men's and less interesting to watch and I'm like I am no one because I have never watched a soccer match voluntarily unless yeah. we were in the World Cup but 
men are stronger and faster and they have higher endurance. It's just a thing that is true. I'm yeah. sorry. That's the reason there's a separate women's soccer league. And given that, right, like maybe that makes the play better. I couldn't tell you. I can tell you that I know about basketball more because I played it in high school. Not well. And it's a different game, yeah. right? It's slower. It's kind of stately. It's a lot more teamwork and a lot yeah. less like individual, right? And there are people who prefer that game and I think sincerely prefer it and are not just kind of saying that they do for kind of ideological reasons because it's a different game. It's it's a completely different set of skill. It's not a completely different set of skills, but it is – it emphasizes sure. a completely different set of skills. And I suspect soccer is the same. Yeah. But it's not as fast, right? It's like quite it's, – it's almost like if you're watching a men's game and a women's game side by side, the men's game is so much faster than the women's game in part because they are literally just faster than women are. And given that, you know, I can't say that it's just sexism. It might just be that biologically men have been given something that makes them on average more interesting to watch than the women and that they are always going to pull – uh, more spectators than the women because of that. I don't know that that yeah, is the I mean, case, I, but we can't rule it out. I, I, I don't, there's nothing I really disagree with in that part of your column, but where I was going to go a different way with this is that, that like, I, knew, I know people who like women's tennis. I know men who like women's tennis better than men's tennis because right. men's tennis is boring because it's just a serving competition, yeah. right? Or so I hear because I don't watch that crap either. But... Um, uh, and women, and that's an area, right? Where although the men still get more endorsements, but that is an area where a lot of people prefer women's tennis because there's actually something that happens, and the men's power is actually, for spectator purposes, almost a handicap, right? right? Like, but 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 my but my point is, audience desire. It turns out that women, is a gross stereotype, and there are lots of exceptions to it. There are just as there are many men like me who don't follow sports very much at all. I mean, I like sports. I just, it's, I'm not just hugely into it. There are many women who are hugely into sports, but there are also very large numbers of women who aren't. Right. Um, meanwhile, where is the outrage over the fact that female porn stars make more than male porn stars? Also female, female models. Female supermodels. make Female a, gymnasts fe- get way yeah. more on endorsements. Um, female figure skaters. So it's actually stre- sports that emphasize things that women on average are just biologically endowed to be better at, like flexibility, um, are the areas where women make but, money. Uh, again, but my, my point, and again, I don't disagree with that necessarily, but my point is just like, where the market is, right? You know, the market is if you're if you're an advertiser and you want to sell ads during a soccer game, or you want to sell soap during a soccer game, sure, uh, you're more likely to want to do it where there can be more eyeballs, and there for whatever reason there are more eyeballs, and it, maybe it's just that men who are interested in who are really into sports like to watch men play sports, right? But I, so this is a really fundamental though argument about social organization, right? Now, you know, and and this goes to a lot of the left right difference. And I would argue that in sports, that's probably the right, right? We're talking about a handful of people, all of whom have hit the pick six in the genetic lottery. Mm. And at the end of the day, like, is it really a big deal to America whether our male and female athletes get paid exactly the same amount of money? No, because most people are not going to be professional athletes. It's just not like it is. I, I, I feel for the women if who are being affected by whatever is causing this. Mm-hmm. But it's not actually a giant social problem compared to other things. But this this actually goes down to questions of like, look, let's assume arguendo that women are just never going to be attract the revenue that men do, right? Well, there are 
cases in which we say we don't just let the market operate and we don't interfere with its choices, right? Uh, the cognitively disabled can't really earn enough in modern society to support themselves. And no one, or almost no one, says, oh, well, that's just too bad. We'll let them die. We say, no, we're going to come in and interfere with that that, that allocation that has been chosen by the market, right? Mm-hmm. So you Carry this analogy further, please. Uh, no, apparently. <laughs> um, you know, or even, even, uh, even when it's biological, certainly mm-hmm. when we actually think there are malevolent intentions, right? I don't know that without the legal support, Jim Crow couldn't have kept going forever. I'm sure it couldn't have. Right? Maybe not. But it might have kept going for a really long time. And am I okay with the government going in and saying, nope, nope, you cannot deny blacks the the right to sit down at your lunch counter? Yes, I am okay with that. And so, you know, we do interfere, certainly when it's malevolent, sometimes when it's biological. Now we have to argue about when should we interfere? What counts as, as a, a justified interference and what's too far? And as I say, I think in the case of professional sports, where we don't have real evidence that it's malevolent intent, but when we have these emergent outcomes from millions and millions of viewers, right, well, you can't really go around and force them to stop preferring to watch men's soccer, right? So what do you do instead? You sort of put pressure on the institution, which is what people are doing. I just think that Realistically, women's soccer draws so much less money than men's. The only reason the women's soccer team is so much better than the men's soccer team is that no one watches it in the United States. Mm -hmm. If people watched a lot of soccer in the United States, we would have a very good men's soccer team the way we do with our, you know, when you look at the U.S. national basketball team or the national baseball team, right? These guys go to the Olympics every year and they're at least in contention and often the gold medalists. Um, And that is because... America is very big. We have a lot of very athletic guys, and they choose to play the revenue sports, the popular stat, high-status sports here. And so there's – I mean there's all sorts of weird inequalities that are – when you're talking about paying women soccer players, you're already talking about all sorts of weird inequalities like the fact that 99.9 percent of people who have ever been born in the United States couldn't even get on that field because they're just not athletically talented. Yeah. So I mean – so this – first of all, if if the issue were purely social justice, then obviously – those guys who play, and I'm not trying to make light of them at all, but you know, there's those leagues where guys in wheelchairs play basketball, right? Right. No one's watching that. They don't make any money from that. They're just doing it for fun. Senior, like seniors tournaments, right? Right. You can find all sorts of more deserving social justice, deserving of social justice compensation than the I assume the largely products of middle class. Uh, upbringing women who go on to play professional soccer. I do think it's a crazy way to to look at these sorts of things, but um, it sort of gets me into something else, though, because we probably talk more about soccer than we ever will again on this. Um, <laughs> possibly. You know, uh, it does track, this argument tracks a lot with all the stuff about women and STEM and all that kind of stuff. Right. You're one of the few women I know who you could have been one of these people drinking 45 Diet Cokes a day doing coding, right? No, I, I, instead I type uh, I type op-eds doing roughly the same Diet Coke consumption. Yeah, but you could have gone and done it. you chose not to, right? And there's a lot of data that says that while as a distribution, there are for complex social, biological, who knows, reasons, women are less attracted to certain STEM fields than, than men mm-hmm. are. And given the choices of doing other things... They choose things that are more interesting to them. Yep. Um, and so one of the problems I have, I wanted to write a piece for Mag- for National Review 20 years ago, or 15 years ago, called The Return of Penis Envy. And uh, so part of my, 
part of my argument is is that you are canceled, Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> and the the idea, you know, the, the same argument that we're having about soccer, right? Uh, you hear it every now and then about action movie stars. Why can't you know Sigourney Weaver or whoever it is get the same pay as Bruce Willis and all that? And in terms of box office draw, I think that is a perfectly legitimate argument. If you draw, if you fill put asses in the seats, you should get the same money. But there's also this weird thing in feminism, or in certain aspects of feminism, that says we have to, in order to prove our equality, we have to do the stuff that the men are doing, right? And so uh, men get paid a lot to go into soccer, so we all have to be really into soccer. Female boxing and all of that, right? Why is the male standard for entertainment considered the glass ceiling that these women have to break through? Why can't there just be a female standard? Y'all won't come to my Pilates class. Um, I mean, seriously, like I'm uh, my Pilates class is like 99 percent ladies of various ages. Uh What is wrong with you people? Pilates is great. I've got fantastic core strength. I believe you. Um, I don't. (laughs) Well, I will expect to see you there next uh, next Monday at 7 a.m. I tried taking Pilates and uh, um, I wish I stuck with it. That's all I'll say. (laughs) It's not too late, Jonah. Uh It is never too late. Uh Uh, No. So I, I think that. That's part of it, uh-huh. actually, is just that, that men – this has long been a thing, right? I read boys' books growing up all the time, and I'm always sort of interested in the women who say, well, we need more books with female heroines because otherwise girls won't have anyone to look up to. And, like, at the age of eight, it just never occurred to me that, that the gender of the hero was right. relevant. Right. I never cared, right? I totally identified with all of these guys. But very few boys voluntarily read The Little House on the Prairie books, right? Uh-huh. It, it, For whatever reason, it, it tends to run one way. And I don't know if that is cultural, whatever. And it is. it has certainly shifted, right? Hunger Games was a perfect example. Mm-hmm. But that's like a girl who is mostly doing old-fashioned dude stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you can draw the boys in. But the, just the girls, like, Wearing makeup and talking about boys and so forth, that's less of the Nancy Drews never really uh, attracted boys, even though they're not really that different from the Hardy Boys. But she wears too much makeup and talks about her new dresses. So I think that women kind of did it because otherwise waiting for men to go the other way and integrate was going to take them the rest of the, you know, the heat death of the universe would arrive first. But I think that, yes, I think that there's also – it's problematic, right? And I think that a lot of the – men I know now who are much more involved fathers than their fathers were sure. are really glad that they are, mm-hmm. right? You know, I mean, not necessarily at three in the morning when they're changing diapers, but in the long run, they have a much closer relationship to their kids than fathers of our father's generation necessarily did. And they feel that they feel that that's actually the best thing in their life, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe maybe there's hope. Maybe there will be more more. Uh, integration going both ways rather than the women feeling like they have to go into the men's arena. But it's also that like a lot of the things that are associated with the men's arena, right? I'm going to, I'm going to pause. I'm just going to like, and reframe this, which is that I think that the feminists of my mother's generation, who I really admire, I disagree with them on a lot of stuff. Uh, The kind of strident tone sets my teeth on edge. But I also recognize, I once said this to my mother, we had, it's, you know, I grew up on the Upper West Side, and we'd been at some party where this just incredibly strident woman was just badgering me about some feminist issue. And, like, I'm, I've considered myself basically feminist. I'm a childless op-ed columnist. I'm not exactly <laughs> Phyllis Schlafly here, right? Um, 
So, but I mean, it was just the tone and like the endless and the refusal to change the subject after I signaled that I had gotten her point. And I said to my mother, like, oh, God, these these people make me crazy. And she said, yeah, but you have to remember if it weren't for those people, you would not have the opportunities you did. That it takes people like that who are willing to be annoying and strident and just keep repeating themselves and hitting the same point with a hammer over and over again. They're the people who make social change. That's um, sort of why the the Israelites had to be in the desert for forty yes. years, right? Because <laughs> they were not temperamentally suited to actually run. <laughs> <laughs> they learned they learned their management skills in the desert. So anyway, the like I guess what I what I think about this is that the the women of that generation solved a bunch of I don't want to say easy problems. They were not easy, but they were clear problems. Mm. Right in an era when there were literally help wanted women and men ads, different sections in the classified ads, right. in an era where time would say, oh, we don't hire women as writers, right? That's a fairly straightforward problem to solve. Yeah. Time is actively refusing to hire women as writers, make them <laughs> agree that they will consider women for those positions. Um, the problems that we have now are by and large less clear cut. It's not to say that sexism isn't there. It's not to say that these aren't still real problems. It's that they're more complicated. What's the right balance of work, life, and family? How much should society view child rearing as a job that you have to do for society? And therefore, we ask companies to pitch in with maternity leave sure. and so forth, right? These are just. And taxpayers. Right, and taxpayers. These are harder questions that don't have obvious answers. And so that is why we are constantly litigating these really, really complicated issues that are very, very difficult. Um, to even understand how much is sexism and how much is something else. Right. And I would just uh, – I'm a, I'm a simple rules for complex society guy and that clear, bigoted, sexist, racist, right. whatever that are it written into law, those kinds of things once gotten out of the way and taken and gotten rid of, which is a matter of, of justice and fairness and Lockean liberalism and all the stuff some of my friends want to get rid of. Um, <laughs> once you do that, enforcing neutral rules that apply to everybody and following a no harm principle and that right. kind of stuff is my preferred. I then want to get out of the social engineering. Right. right. It's, it's one thing to it's one thing to grab the weeds out of the garden. It's another thing to say I'm going to prune everything and make it all look the way I want it to look. And that's the part that bothers me. Right. Well, and, and this is actually a thing, which is that the other – the flip side of that. So I was making the the kind of left-leaning case to mm-hmm. you, right? Because I, I am like an inveterate devil's advocate. But let me make the right-leaning case, which is that the kinds of problems feminism is now trying to solve are the kinds of problems that government is incredibly ill-suited to solve. Sure. Right. Is like government is rules based. It is basically it works best when, you know, social security system, whether or not I as a libertarian would have supported enactment in 1935. uh, I can certainly recognize. Right. It basically does what it's supposed to do. It collects taxes. It takes money. It mails checks. It's got Mm -hmm. a few simple rules for determining like whether you are eligible for a check and how much. And then it mails it to you. It knows where your address is. That's all they do. That's a pretty simple system and the government, whether you think the government should, it can execute that pretty competently and without much controversy. The problem with trying to decide whether U.S. soccer team players are getting paid too little with all of these different – we haven't even gotten into the details of their collective bargaining agreement, which is a whole different yeah, we're not podcast. Going we're not going to. No, no. I, 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 I want to get on to I saw the look of yeah. terror on Jonah's <laughs> face. I did not mean to imply I was going there. Right? The government's bad at that. Because you can't just say, here's a simple rule. 
the society is just too complicated, right? right? If we were a society that only did like three things, we have some farmers and some tinsmiths and like, you know, some people who breed horses, that would be one thing. We're not in that society. And so and so rules-based law, which is really what works best um, from a just efficiency and lack of controversy and democratic legitimacy uh, point of view. Justice. It's, and justice. Uh, um, that is – that's the stuff that like it can't tackle. Right. And, it, and, it, and it's going to, getting back to Nozick, have disparate results because yep. people make different choices. And in a free society, when people make different choices, they're going to have different consequences. Um I do want to move on because we've I, – I, partly because there's other stuff I want to talk to you about and partly because I do not want to give leave anybody with the impression that we have you on to talk lady stuff because you're a lady and all that kind of <laughs> yes. stuff. Um, a while back you wrote a, a good piece about how social media is turning everything into a small town. Um, yes. <laughs> and everyone's a busybody and getting into our junk. And you did an entire episode of Econ Talk about it and so people want to get the full – audio effect of that they should go check it out um and we'll put the piece in the show notes but um i kind of it's weird so yesterday the washington post and i'm not holding you accountable i hate it when people say you know i'm a la times columnist you know why didn't you do something but that something that someone else wrote that i didn't know about whatever you know and but there was a washington post piece that i thought was particularly egregious in that and it's representative of a larger problem um uh, this woman, I don't remember her name, so I don't have to name her. Um, she was talking about the Ariel backlash because apparently for the Ariel oh, remake, right. they've hired a black actress to play Ariel. I, again, before I said about the soccer game that this was rarely is a issue where I'm more passionate about something I cared so little about. I'm not even passionate about this. I don't actually care about, by all means, Black Mermaid, right? I mean, like... The implausible part of the mermaid isn't the black part, right? <laughs> what species of fish is the other half, right? No one is anyone really. Um, but um, what bothered me was, and it's a, it's a growing genre in the clickbait universe of journalism, where her evidence that there was this backlash. She said the backlash against it was a hashtag not my Ariel, and it was proof of white nostalgia for white supremacy and white whiteness on white toast with white whatever and um not only do i find almost all of that identity politics white supremacy stuff to be trite and overdone but that's not the point the only evidence that she actually cited that there was a backlash by name was one twitter account that had like 207 followers that was unverified that ran a hashtag and the question i'm getting at is that given how giant the friggin universe is i mean how giant the universe of the internet is if you want to claim that something bad is happening, you're going to find evidence for it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And there's an enormous amount of punditry out there where you come up with a thesis first. The white people don't like a black mermaid. And then Twitter, the, the Twitter gods are so generous. They will find some jackwad out there will say, this is outrageous. This used to be a white country. How dare we have black mermaids? And boom, you're off to the races Proving And so I don't want to go off about the, the Washington Post person, but this is a big part of this. You were talking earlier about the forming coalitions and everyone has to be in on it. When you do this, what David French calls nut picking, where you just pick the worst example from the other side and say, see, that's what they're all like. Those kids in Shelbyville, they like candy for the sweet, sweet taste. Um, you get into these kinds of messes. Um, 
I, I, I love all of my colleagues and do not criticize them. Uh, and also, we're totally isolated from the news side, so mm-hmm. I can't even mm-hmm. um, I can't even speak. Let's just stipulate you never even saw the columns. So you can't speak, I've never seen this and speak uh, intelligently about it. So. so I will say a couple of things, which is that I personally, in my work, um, have really tried to downplay the overwhelming temptation to just see something on Twitter and be like, this is the world, right? This right. is like, look at all of these people saying this. And like, sometimes I will. I might, I, you know, I, I think, and sometimes I actually get insights from it. You know, for example, I wrote a column on, on Never Trump last week. And one thing that actually really became apparent to me from seeing the reaction on Twitter and in my comments was that the left had had very different expectations of Never Trump people than conservatives had. And that would Expectations and definitions. Right. And, yeah. and and they had thought that the that never Trump meant essentially becoming a Democrat, and that wasn't something that never Trump people had ever thought it meant, right? And so that was useful, right? I that was an insight that I hadn't realized and it, it explained a lot about why so many people seemed to feel betrayed by never Trumpers who mm-hmm. weren't behaving in the way they'd expected. But that said, I think there's a big problem with finding three people on Twitter and then treating that as as the real world, right? People on Twitter are not normal. Right. But there's the second problem that you talk about, which is the statistical fallacy. It's it's a country of 300 million people and Twitter has a lot of them as users. Some jerk has always been doing this stuff. And so part of our perception is that all of these things have gotten worse. No, there were always people sitting in their bedrooms ranting about the communists right. or ranting about Republicans or ranting. The difference is that it feels totally immediate and constant and all the time. And so – I think it is bad for us. I think it is emotionally bad for people who take this as somehow representative. I think it is a lot of the effect behind Twitter mobs. I mean, one of the points that I've made in my columns about this is if you think about a lot of Twitter mobs, you're talking about enough people to not really fill a Texas high school football stadium. Right. Right. And yet, like a Twitter mob starts and suddenly Delta is on its knees canceling, uh, you know, convention discounts for NRA members. Right. And that's crazy. <laughs> right. This is totally crazy. It's, But I think that that part of it is actually going to get better because I think people are slowly beginning to understand that they need to filter it for the for how hard it is to tweet, which is not very Right. When I and I can say this from experience, I've been in the middle of some really bad mobs, internet mobs. Not me. No. <laughs> <laughs> and when it happens, especially the first few times yeah. when it happens, it feels like every single human being you have ever met yeah. is just standing in a giant circle and screaming profanity at you. Was that asked? What was that thing in the 70s where you sit yes. in the middle of the circle and people yes, tell, it's like tell that, you horrible things? Only thousands more people than that, right? It See, feels these horrible. These kids sitting in here, they don't know how horrible the 70s yes. were. It was just, it was, that's all it was every day. Um, <laughs> yes. Preschool. I remember preschool asked. It was terrible. Um, so, Megan, why aren't you ready to admit that you eat paste? Um, so, you know, I... But after a while, someone – actually, people periodically ask me, like, why I seem so kind of serene dealing with my trolls. Because my policy with trolls now is, like, I either ignore them. If they're really annoying and just keep polluting my mentions, I, I uh, mute them. Mm-hmm. I never block. Mm-hmm. I, I I let them scream happily into the void, gains from trade. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Um, but – you know, why am I so serene? Because as I said to someone, you know, the first time someone mails you a picture of your house with a gun sight superimposed over it, 
you freak out. Yeah. And then the third time you look at it and you're like, ah, to be honest, I've seen better. <laughs> um, <laughs> Learn better Photoshop. Right. And like, the, so I think that eventually you develop a shell of like, oh, this isn't real, mm-hmm. right? This is people. And it's really interesting too, interacting with some of my trolls in, in real life, right? Where they're like, it hasn't happened very often, but when it does, they're like, oh, wait, you're a person. Yeah. You're not like, they imagine me as like the god emperor of Dune. Right? Just, <laughs> I sit atop my giant pile of gold um, and I write terrible things about, the, uh, about other people. And that's, you know, when they see that I'm actually kind of like a normal human being who lives in a not very big house and like, you know, has runs in her stockings like everyone else, it, it, it goes a long way towards uh, towards making up for some of the things they thought about me. And so I think that ultimately as a society, we are going to adjust to this, but I think it is going to take some time and that we are in the kind of particularly bad moment where everyone has figured out how to scream and no one has figured out how to block it out. Yeah. No. I, so it's funny. When, when my first book came out and I was getting, you know, I'd been attacked for two years before the thing came out. And uh, my editor at the time said, look, this is like one of those animatronic rides at the Pirates of Caribbean. You can get startled. They can lunge out at you, but they can't actually hurt you. And it's a good thing to keep in mind. And every now and then, like during the the troll stuff of 2015 with the Russian bots, some of the stuff that got thrown at me about, you know, I don't need to repeat the story about how many people asked me whether my brother was going to be turned into soap or not after he died, but that kind of stuff. Oh, God. That was kind of hard. But... um, yeah, and I actually so I put the the parentheses around my name because Yair Rosenberg asked yeah. Gentiles to do it, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna uh-huh. I, I will participate in this. But then all of these people in that horrible group of not very large people, sure, sure, but, sure. Uh, oh, I suspect some but, of them are large. No, <laughs> I don't think there were like millions of. Them. No, 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 no. Of course was, not. You know, yeah. there were like a few thousand really horrendous people who were filling uh, Jewish people on Twitter's yeah. mentions, and so. They immediately were like, oh, secret Jew. Yeah. And then I got all of this stuff. And it was – and I went to a mostly Jewish high school and I grew and, and grew up on the Upper West Side where we had a lot of Holocaust survivors in our building. So I grew up I, – I don't have the personal connection to it and I yeah. don't want to say that I do. But I certainly grew up with a big appreciation for the gravity and horror of the Holocaust and to see that there were – I would not have before this thought that there was one person in the entire country who would joke about concentration yeah, camps so, and I was horrified. So it's fascinating. Uh, and I think about this all the time. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast. When I first got my syndicated column, it was, good God, like 19 years ago. And so this is early internet, right? I mean small – Aquatic creatures with tiny appendages we could call legs <laughs> were on the web. And um, I would get, not a lot, call it, I mean, I would get a lot of anti-Semitic email. A lot. A lot. Right? Because I have the, one of the Jewiest names in Christendom. And um, uh, and the, but about a dozen times over the first two years, this is back when email was the way that people communicated with people, Right. I would get that in semaphore. Yeah. <laughs> I would get email from people saying all the anti-Semitic stuff like, you know, you horrible kike, mf blah, 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 blah. They should have taken you out in the ovens, all that kind of stuff, right? And I used to have a tendency to respond to this stuff and I would try to shame them. And I would say, oh, you know, shame on you or God is watching you is one of my favorite things to say to people. And, um, and about a dozen times out of lots and lots of anti-Semitic, people would write back to me and they would say – 
Oh my God, I am so embarrassed. I had no idea you were going to read that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and they would then tell me these weird stories. Some of them had been drunk and they had a really bad day or some of them were just venting or whatever. And I think some of them wouldn't tell me this, but were just terrified that I had their email right. address and I was going to out them so they wanted to apologize. Um, sincerely or otherwise, I don't know. But to me, it's been kind of haunting in the back of my head all this time. This And I, I have liberal Jewish friends, you know, journalists who get lots – all the anti-Semitic mail they would get were always from the right, so to speak. And all, almost the vast majority, not all, um, because like there are people in the swampy yeah. parts of the right who hate me a lot. But most of mine came from the left. And But it always is sort of like how many people across the, that I see on the street – could have been this person who dashed off this email on a bad day and really just wanted to, like, vent at the Jews. And it's just I, – I, I think that, that America is the greatest place that has ever existed for Jews. It's In many ways, you don't get Israel if you don't have America. America is the – you know, I just wrote this book that it's the savior of humankind. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm – Great book, by the way. Everyone should buy it. Thank you very much. I'm all in for the – you know, for the United States of America. But – it is this weird thing to think about how there are still these people out there. It's this old, weird virus that's in people's heads. So, Yeah, I mean, I... I, I got to open a beer. <laughs> um, I think that that would be... And I that that would terrify me if I were Jewish. Not that it doesn't terrify me as a non-Jew, but you understand it's yeah, yeah, sure, a personal sure. threat, right? And besides, you're a secret Jew. So. Uh, <laughs> secret Jew. Um, so I, I think that that's right in the sense that anti-Semitism does seem to be weirdly persistent, right? It'll die down for 200 years and then it just roars back and right. you can't, you don't even understand where it came from. But I, I, there, I think there is maybe a hopeful flip side to that. Which is that people will say things they don't necessarily act on. Mm -hmm. It's a really fascinating study. They'll also sometimes say things that they don't believe. Right. Too. But fascinating study uh, by a guy who decided to take a minority couple um, around – Asian couple when uh, – during the, the period when uh, California and the West would not rent to – would like where they were – actively discriminating against people of Asian ancestry. So he took them to a, to a bunch of hotels and he called – what he did was – and this is kind of terrible because this is in the early part of the 20th century. Um, he didn't tell the couple yeah. or friends of his what he Arthur was Brooks has talked about this, I think. Yeah. So he takes them to a bunch of hotels and he calls in advance and he says, will you rent a room to a Chinese couple? And they say no. Yeah. Out of all of these hotels – and it was like dozens, maybe a couple hundred hotels that he went to over the course of a few years. Only one of them didn't rent to them. Yeah. Right? And so what's actually – I mean what's – I'm not saying that racism isn't a problem, anti-Semitism isn't a problem. But what's actually hopeful in that, right, is that we tend to think that it's the reverse, right, is that like people who, who say good things can be secretly racist in right. their actions. And that's true. Yeah. But the flip side is that people who said racist things then then weren't – actually racist in their actions. And so, you know, we should remember both of those. Yeah, no, remember that people can write those letters and yet if there were an anti-Semitic regime might well hide Jews in their basement because I'm sure that some of the people who did end up hiding Jews in their basement had said terrible sure. anti-Semitic things, right? Is that like there's a base level of humanity that, that matters more even than our than necessarily what we think our opinions about about race and, and 
ethnicity and religion are. And you can focus on the negative side of that, which certainly exists. But I try to focus on the positive side because I think it tends to get overlooked. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, the, it was Andrew Sullivan in an earlier phase called him the closet tolerance. Yes. <laughs> Those people exist, too. Let's reach out to them and make them feel better about being closet tolerance. All right. So I've kept you for a very long time, but we, I would be remiss if we didn't at least very quickly talk about the most pressing issue. That, how's your dog? Uh, dog is okay. He has been diagnosed with epilepsy. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Which was... could destroy your house given his size. <laughs> so far, he's, uh, he, I mean, he's actually quite quiet with his seizures. He just falls. Yeah. Um, How old is he? He is six. Okay. But it's been happening for years. We just didn't know what it was. Yeah. He also has, he has other, he has a neck problem. Yeah, I remember that, you talking about made, that. we had thought was somehow related to he would periodically just flop on the floor and then not be able to get up for 10 minutes. And we finally went to a neurologist and she was like... No, that's epilepsy. Oh, um, it's scotch, but it's similar. <laughs> uh, but he's otherwise good. He doesn't know he has epilepsy, right? Yeah. I mean, he has to take phenobarbital, but he doesn't actually understand like that anything has happened, right? Yeah. He, no long-term memory. totally forgets about it the day after. So um, he is otherwise pretty good. He is adorable and sweet and likes to sleep curled up next to me while I work on the sofa. Remind listeners. The, the, the... Fitzgerald? Fitzgerald, and he is a bull mastiff. Bull mastiff, which is one of my favorite breeds. Uh, they are a fantastic breed. He is a little anxious because uh, we are renovating our house. Uh-huh. It's they don't massive. like that. Uh, he's better at it than mo- he's better. He's f- good about the better about the noise than most dogs would be. Um, but he doesn't like it, especially because there are all of these strangers being allowed into our basement, and he is not being allowed to supervise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And no. that is his job. Yeah, yeah. We are we are stepping on his managerial prerogatives. Yeah, yeah. How, and how are your dogs? My dogs are well. Uh, Pippa, uh, the spaniel. Uh, she cut, I saw how to cut her foot. She had cut her fo- paw, and um, and so has gone back and forth between the um, the waggle inhibiting booty. <laughs> um, that she has to wear when going on walks or the cone of shame. and But I think it's coming to an end. Um, Zoe's not been... She's been kind of low energy and she is emitting an odor that I find particularly noisome, to use a word, a word that most people use incorrectly. And... Um, but otherwise, they're it's good. The heat. It's the heat. I think it's partly. The I think heat. if it's yeah. dry, I've noticed a similar odiferousness. Shall yeah, we say there's a uh, and he is there's a fermentation like, thing going. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's like, dude, whatever that is, you got to get that under control. Yeah. Okay? Um, but yes, they are. He doesn't. He doesn't like the heat. He doesn't like the. So I, I don't mean to bring up a sad story, but it's um, you, when we remodeled our house, we had Cosmo, the Wonder Dog, the greatest yes. dog who ever lived. Um, he's the guy in the party hat in my Twitter profile. And um, so my dad had recently died and I, you know, hit me hard, really loved my dad. And um, I was finally sort of felt like I was ready to do things. I went and did a panel at some hotel down, you know, like in Cleveland Park, one of the, that Wardman Hilton Sheraton thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I see Peter Barnard, who I've you know, been done a zillion things with. And it was the first time Peter had seen me since... Uh, my dad died, and he asked me how I'm doing. And you know that feeling where it just sneaks up on you, and I just mm-hmm. start to cry in front of people. It's awful. Feel awful. Really hard to do punditry after you've started. And so already a bad day, right? Then I go to a Chipotle, recently opened. Very excited about this new burrito place in Washington. This was a while ago. And I go in, and I get my burrito, and as I'm walking to the counter to get napkins... A teenager vomits on my leg. (laughs) 
And so days not going great. And then um, I get I'm heading home and I get a call from my wife that says Cosmo has run away because of the he didn't like the construction work. He's just like, screw it. If I if I'm not allowed to vet these people, I'm out of here. And he ran away. He ran away to my sister-in-law's house, which was just a couple blocks away. Um, <laughs> but I felt like it's like me when I was in uh, like I, I once tried to run away and I just circled the block because I wasn't allowed to cross the street. There you go. See, r- clear rules. <laughs> um, but it was like my life had turned into a country music song, you know. <laughs> um, and that's uh, terrible. So I always think about that. But um, but your dog can't play well with other doggies no right? well he the the tragedy is he is the world's most social dog yeah he loves people he loves other animals and he's super sweet before we knew about he he was born with a congenital condition that got worse as he got older and so he had to have spinal surgery to remove the, the some cervical vertebra uh-huh. from uh from his neck uh which means he can't it's not safe for him to play with other dogs he is perfectly safe but before that happened he actually once got attacked by a pit bull and my 160 pound dog squealed and ran away while the pit bull who's like 30 pounds is uh, is going after him. My dog could have killed that dog yeah. with one crush of his teeth, but he never would. He's an incredibly sweet dog, but he has never after the age of 14 months ever been allowed to play with another dog and it's terrible and it makes me so sad. But he like we try to make up uh, uh, for it by paying him a lot of attention and yeah. the nice thing about his life is that he has Two writers who frequently work from home, yeah, yeah, and yeah. most dogs don't get that. So now we have the similar thing as our dogs get lots of attention. But you also get up at like five in the morning and take them to the park. I do, I do, I do. But then, then my dog walking obligations, at least on weekdays, are over for the day, and um, uh, and now they've just got me trained. I just get up that early, so I go to bed early, and um, I just um, naturally get up between five and six in the morning in the summer. So yeah. So someone once gave me the advice. They said, you know. You'll find that the morning is the only time of the day that you control. By the afternoon, the day controls you. Yes. And I find that, like, I, one of the things that I learned a long time ago, and sometimes I should get, like, a bunch of columns on here and just talk about different muscle memory for how you write columns because everyone's got their own patterns. And when you hit a certain age, you just know what you can do and what you can't do. And I discovered 15 years ago that come 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, if I hadn't Assuming I'm not on a deadline, you know, if I'm working on a book or something like that, mm-hmm. or a longer magazine piece, if if it's not coming naturally, you can't force it. Yeah. And I can do better to get a good night's sleep, wake up at 6 a.m., and I can bang out something in 45 minutes that would have taken me four hours at 5 o'clock in the afternoon just because I don't have the neurons anymore. And so I'm kind of grateful to the dogs waking me up, and it's a nice way to go, and it's – I will admit it's just some shameless Twitter – pandering going on but, I, but that's one of the, the reasons I, not the only reason but certainly one of the reasons that i follow you so avidly i hear that from a lot of people and um and uh your husband i will i can often see that he is he's favoriting or liking various dog <laughs> videos but almost no punditry uh, yeah, no, he's, <laughs> he's obsessed with bull mastiff accounts on instagram now yeah just comes in periodically and just shows me oh look look at the there's one that has they, these people have three bull mastiffs that's a lot of puppies dog. Two are puppies and one's like an adolescent, and those videos are pretty great. That's a lot of dog. That is, a, we've because two dogs is more is, is is logarithmically more than one dog, and three dogs is just it's a pack. Yeah, we've talked we've talked about wanting a second dog, which is impossible as long as we have Fitzgerald. Um, we've talked about eventually wanting to like have a, a place in the country and you know lots of room to have like a three or four dog pack, yeah. but. I think first we need to start with two, and and that's going to be a yeah. while. I mean, 
Do you ever read that secret, that Hidden Life of Dogs book? Uh, uh, no, I didn't. About 15 years ago? It's great. It's thin. You shouldn't read it because one of the big takeaways from it is um, that dogs just want to hang out with other dogs. And if you only have one dog. But, um, uh, and I'm not sure that's entirely true. It kind of depends on the dog. Um, some dogs are really solitary. But um, I am a believer in having more than one dog if you can. Yes. No, um, I, we, we, the plan had always been to get a second dog. And then, as with many things in life, uh, reality Events intervened got, yeah. and diverted us from that plan because it's just not safe for him. And also, we were told we could get a very small dog, like yeah. a 20-pound dog. Um, which neither is the fear is someone's going to jump up on him. Is that the, the theory? Thing? Is that if someone rolls him, he could get paralyzed? Yeah. Um, and so we had thought about it, but by the time we sort of decided, yes, okay, we're going to go that direction, we thought, you know what? He's five. Yeah. And I don't know that he would enjoy having another dog around as yeah, much. Yeah. yeah. Now. Once they get once they get middle age, having a puppy around them, if they're not used to having puppies around them, like they turn into WC Fields, right? And it's like, get the <laughs> kid away from me! You're bothering me. Exactly. Get off my lawn, kid. Yeah, All right. So well. Megan McArdle, thank you for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me once again. Always a pleasure. And uh, hope to have you on again sometime. Hope to be on again, Joe. All right. Okay, so uh, Megan McArdle has left the building. Apparently I was too loud when I said that. Yeah, I'll fix that. Don't worry. Okay, I can say it again. Uh, no, I like the authenticity we've got going on here. It's what the people crave. It, it truly is. Uh, what do you think about all that? Do you think we lingered too much on soccer? Megan kind of thought we did. I mean, look, I do not, truly do not care about soccer. <laughs> so my answer is yes, but I, apparently this is a newsy topic, so whatever. Any sport that's not cross-country or, or long-distance running is... Are you upset that... that... Women cross country runners aren't getting paid as much as male <laughs> cross country runners. <laughs> um, no comment. Uh, I don't think that's real. Like, there's no. What do you mean? No, I know. That's my point. <laughs> um, that's the joke. Yeah. No. Look. I mean. Again. I. 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 I think it's interesting for what it illuminates about the larger arguments, but the actual subject matter could not care about less. And. Uh, among my reprobate friends, some of them have actually been to WNBA games. And the thing is, is that the stadium is full of, well, for, it's, for, it's full of empty seats for the most part. But um, the, you know, there are a lot of kids, high school kids there because they have these sort of giveaway tickets to, to, for the to juice, you know, things. And they have a lot of, and they have a handful of people who are like really into women's basketball. But there's just not a lot of people who are into it. And I don't see how that's unjust. It's not unfair to say that that the market shouldn't reward people that there isn't a market for something. I personally wish, you know, there were much better markets for all sorts of things, including, you know, fairly nerdy podcasts. But you take it as it is. I thought you were going to say Big Fit Erotica. I wasn't because I'm actually neither a consumer nor a producer of Bigfoot Erotica. And how did you know about it in the first place? <clears throat> I also know about Peoria. That doesn't mean, you know, that like I'm the mayor of Peoria. I know Not with that attitude. I, much like uh, a certain character from Game of Thrones, I, I, I drink and I know things. That's that's what I do. Anyway, so uh I always like having Megan on and um we're actually going to have 
the lovely and talented A.B. Stoddard on this week as well, although I'm not sure when that's going to air. depends on how... Um, how many goats you sacrifice to Crom. Yes, and how newsy it is versus, you know, how evergreen it is and all the rest. Um, since we didn't get a chance to sort of sum up the David Bonson podcast, what did you think of that thing? Uh, oh, I, didn't, I actually did not know that his father was literally the expert on some of the things that you were talking about. That's, yes. That's like, whoa, okay. Yeah. Um, so I understand what he said about trying, wanting to have distance from it, but you... Just when he thought he was out, you pulled him back in. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he's 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 affirmatively interested in these things. Yes, we, we were together in Grand Rapids because we were both at an acting event. Right. So, but uh, no, I've always had a weak spot for theology stuff. I think it's all really, really interesting, and um, even when I have no emotional or spiritual attachment to it, I've always sort of found that stuff interesting. I, I think in part because I like someone who likes words and likes the idea that words have power. There's when you read theology stuff, it's like reading magic stuff. I'm not comparing the two. I'm just saying that there's this feeling like these small doctrinal differences have real power over people's hearts and minds. And I just think that stuff is interesting. So, but I probably shouldn't have opened with it the way I did in that podcast, but I was hung over and it was seven o'clock <laughs> in the morning. So it is what well, it is. Well, I didn't know about that. Um, but now I do, and so and now so it is everyone else. Yeah. So there you have it. <laughs> All right. Um, How do you feel? Every once in a while, we get suggestions for doing a drinking episode of the Remnant. I don't know, like drinking where we talk about drinking. No, we... like progressively more alcohol is consumed over the course. Of I'm the I'm open to that. That is really guest dependent um, <laughs> because. First of all, you're not a you're. I mean, you're not a teetotaler, but you're not a big drinker, right? And, no, not really. Um, and you, so like, while I was just getting warmed up, you might not be safe to man the controls. Of oh, life. please! I <laughs> hey, and, I can I can hold my stuff. Uh, just don't do it that much. And um, dude, as it's PJ work once said to me, the liver is a muscle. If you don't work <laughs> it, 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 it atrophies. Well, run a, run a beer mile, then get back to me. Yeah, that's different. Those are different muscles. <laughs> oh, there, there's both muscles. That's the challenge. <laughs> um. That is logistically very difficult for a podcast. True. I'm open to it. I mean, I like, you know, there, it depends. Again, it's sort of guest dependent. Um, if I could get Matt Labash to oh, yeah, do the... electronic media, which he won't do, he would be great. Yeah, he just resurfaced. He did. I saw that. I still haven't read the piece yet, but I'm excited to see his byline again. In Drake Magazine, yeah. a fishing magazine, of course. And uh, another topic. I truly fishing. don't care about. <laughs> so I'm interested in fishing. Like if I, I could see myself going on a sort of Captain Ahab esque quest to find the Kraken. Like that, that mm-hmm. that's the sort of fishing I'd be into. But but other than that, I'm not really. Yeah, I mean, I've been on a bunch of fishing trips with my wife's family, um, because that's one of the things they do up there. Um, but I'm just not. I know this is going to shock a lot of people. I mean, I I, I I liked a lot of it. I like to eat fish, um, and I like I like lots of pastimes that are excuses to drink beer during daylight hours. But at the end of the that's day, that's most holidays nowadays. I don't like um the the viscera and the stench and and the, and the killing things. I'm just not a killing things kind of guy. Well, that's a relief. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I make exceptions, Jack. So, uh, good luck. 
we don't have much else that we have to cover. Um, I do really want to encourage people to sign up for uh, the G-File at Reagan35x.com. I promise that even if you don't like the G-File or don't want to read the G-File, that is also going to be the source. That mailing list is going to be the source of updates for the new thing that, that Steve Hayes and I are doing. Steve should be back in North America in the next, uh, I don't know, a few weeks, which is very exciting. Um, it's never ideal to start a new business with someone who's living in Madrid. Um, <laughs> and when he's back, shortly thereafter, he'll You come. fell into one of the classic blunders. <laughs> shortly after he's back, we'll uh, have him on to uh, um, so that Steve and I can sort of brief you guys. But again, if you could sign up at Reagan35x.com, I would really appreciate it. Follow us on Twitter. Please keep the reviews and stuff going. Um, I'm going to give another try, I think, to the, uh, what do you call it, uh, audio G-file thingamabob. Mm-hmm. General feedback was, there was a lot of constructive criticism. It was worthy of criticism, I think. But um, generally, the feedback was pretty positive. Um, anything else that we need to discuss? Uh, need? <laughs> or... <laughs> need is strong. No, fair enough. All right. So with that, uh, thanks again to everybody. Thanks for the support. Um, we're going to rely on it more and more. And um, I'll see you no, next time. first 20 minutes of this thing is all about what theonomy is. I don't even know what theonomy, what theonomy is. theonomy versus theocracy. Theonomy is, is, it's actually, I think, fascinating. I thought you said you weren't going to talk about it. <laughs> well, we're not, we're not recording it, are we? I am recording, but this won't be in the podcast. Okay, maybe, maybe it can be a bonus track at the very end. I've always wanted to have a bonus track. It's like a, it's sort of like, in religious terms, it's like kind of the difference between Hayekian spontaneous order from below where people live because they're biblical people they live according to biblical rules without it being imposed upon them like the Amish it's, yeah it's generated self-generated right versus theocracy where theocrats impose from above and, having, personally I just grasp the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy so like oh I, I, can you hit me with the difference between uh, orthodoxy, orthodoxy is right right belief and orthopraxy is right practice, practice. okay that makes sense because but you, growing up from libertarian world, would think you'd know praxis better, right? I mean, pra- I never, I didn't even know orthopraxy was a thing. Okay. I actually just like. It sounds like it costs extra when you go back to the orthodontist. Okay. <laughs>